0: This is a Federal News Network podcast.
1: Welcome to Between the Lines with the Administrative Conference of the United States on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Now, your host, Andrew Foyce.
2: Good day, everyone, and welcome to the very first edition of the new FNN program, Between the Lines with the Administrative Conference. My name is Andrew Foyce. I go by Andy uh, and I am the chair of the Administrative Conference of the United States, uh, which is affectionately known as ACUS, and I will be your host for this program. In this program, we will try to take you between the lines of administrative law, administrative procedure, and the work that ACUS is doing in them. In today's broadcast, we will be answering the questions that you probably are already asking. What is ACUS? Who are they? What do they do? Uh, what are they working on right now? Let me start off by saying that ACUS is a small federal agency whose mission is to simply make government work better. There's a lot more to it, and our guests will uh, talk about that, but that's it in a nutshell. And I know that many of our listeners are federal employees and others who also share an interest in making the government work better. Let me just say at the outset that other than describing the work that um, ACUS's assembly, the the full assembly of, of the conference, Uh, has voted on and endorsed, we will not be uh, expressing any official positions um, of the Assembly. So with that said, we have three outstanding guests with us today who have long and unique histories with ACIS. I've had the privilege of getting to know them during the past 15 months that I have been chair, and uh, I'm going to tell you a little bit about them, which just begins to address the accomplishments that they have made in their career. Paul Verkyle, is a senior fellow at ACUS, uh, but more um, importantly, he was ACUS chair uh, between the years of 2010 and 2015 during a critical time in the history of the agency. So we call him uh, the chair emeritus of ACUS. He is the former dean of the Tulane Law School and the Cardozo School of Law and was president of the College of William and Mary. He has a distinguished record in private practice. He's a recognized expert in administrative law and government process, and he has published widely. Um, Paul, welcome to the first edition of Between the Lines.
3: Thank you, Andy. Pleasure to be here.
2: It's great to have you here. Our next guest is Ronald Cass. He's the president of Cass & Associates and the senior member of the ACUS Council at the moment. He is dean emeritus of the Boston University School of Law, where he served as dean from 1990 to 2004, He's been a law professor at the University of Virginia and also Boston University, and he has had seven presidential appointments uh, in his career. He's an expert in administrative law and an extremely prolific author. Ron is also expert at uh, let's say turning a, a phrase that uh, makes you smile, so I look forward to uh, hearing what he has in store for us today. Ron, welcome to the show
1: Happy to be here and hope people will smile a lot. <laughs>
2: Well, I, I, know, I know we will, uh, Ron. I'm looking forward to it. My third guest is Fumi Oloranipa Bajo. She is head of the compliance uh, program uh, in, in the uh, council's office at Palantir Technologies, a global software company, and she presently serves at, uh, as a member of the ACUS Council. She has also worked as an attorney advisor on the staff of the administrative conference, which makes her uh, unique amongst our guests. She previously worked as special assistant to the president and associate White House counsel. She also comes from a very accomplished family. Her brother, Toulouse, works for the uh, Washington Post as a, as a reporter and writer, and he just won a Pulitzer Prize. So the uh, Olorunipa family is a very accomplished one. Um, Fumi, thank you so much for being part of our inaugural program.
0: Thanks for having me, Andy. Happy to be here.
2: We're so lucky and grateful that three superstars in the history of ACUS and in administrative law are able to join us today. So let's get to it. Um, Paul, let's start with you. Tell us, what is ACUS and what does it do?
3: So like you said, it, it makes government work better, or as I would put it, it makes the machinery of government runs more smoothly. Uh, because government runs on processes, procedures, and adjudicates and makes rules and makes decisions and all of this is surrounded by the need for procedure communication participation and so forth so that's what we do now it's important because what agencies are always challenged by is the degree of discretion that they have over the public and it's the discretion that's necessary to operate but we channel it and Cabinet, so that it's transparent and it's also part of a, a established tradition of judicial performance.
2: I, I heard someone, in fact, more than uh, one person, say to me that if Acus didn't exist, we'd have to invent it. Uh, do you agree with that?
3: Yeah. Oh no. Of course. I mean, how, how you've got to work your way through the morass and of, of government agencies. We ran out of alphabetical letters, really, to describe them all. So, mm-hmm. yes, we need, we're need we needed.
2: You know, in the uh, office, in the ACUS office, uh, there are pre- uh, uh, portraits of the president and vice president, of course, but there's also big portraits uh, near my uh, office of uh, President Eisenhower and President Kennedy. Why did you choose to put those, uh, those last two up, Paul?
3: <laughs> well, when we restarted ACUS, I wanted to establish two things. One is our great tradition and history, and second is our bipartisan nature. So I put up President Eisenhower because under his leadership, Herbert Brownell, his attorney general, was the first one to come up with the idea in the 1950s of this kind of a process. He compared it to the administrative conference to the judicial conference, which already existed, of course, and is vital on that side. Um, And so I thought we ought to put Ike up there. But then to balance it out, we needed, of course, John Kennedy, the great president, and um, in my view, my first president to vote for. But um, John Kennedy was very important because he established the executive order 10934, which created ACUS. And um, he had a great interest in it, too. And of course, but for the tragedy at Dallas, uh, he would have enacted it into a statutory form, which uh, was left to Lyndon Johnson a few years later.
2: Uh, you've, you mentioned that Acus works on administrative procedures and government processes as opposed to the substance of, of policy. Um, tell us a little more about the distinction and what it means to you. And I understand you have a a, a great story from a former. Uh, deceased uh, important congressman in in D.C.?
3: Well, look, most of what lawyers do is to distinguish between substance and procedure. That comes on all the time. It is essential to federal procedure, federal courts. Uh, So we are on the process or procedure side of of the equation. And uh, the question is, you know, are we relegated to unimportant matters? Uh, Is substance the whole game? Not at all. Procedure, it turns out, is as much bigger game as substance. John Dingle, the famous legislator congressman from Detroit, once said, look, okay, I'll give you the substance in a piece of legislation if you'll leave me the procedure, and I'll screw you every time. He used colorful language. Um, So procedure can be a weapon, and our job is to make it less of a weapon and more of a functioning asset government.
2: And, and you mentioned that uh, Lyndon Johnson signed uh, our authorizing statute called the Administrative Conference Act in 1968. Can uh, you just summarize real quickly for us what that statute uh, says the responsibilities of ACUS are?
3: Sure. Well, first of all, to study problems, exchange information, and develop recommendations through the assembly of the, as you mentioned, of the administrative conference. It's essential to protect private rights. That's a highlight. It promotes public participation, efficient rulemaking processes, reduces, it's asked to reduce unnecessary litigation, which is always a a hard thing to strive for. Mm. And it also is asked to improve the use of science in the regulatory process, which I must say is a particularly important item to the in today's world.
2: Yeah, uh, we in fact uh, have as a high priority now on our research uh schedule to uh do everything we can to help agencies uh with the uh technology you, you know, make best use of technology including algorithmic um tools and uh AI tools. So uh you you bet that that's one of the most important ones. And of course we we strive to improve the effectiveness of the laws and regulations on, mm-hmm. on the books. Um, would you agree, Paul, that um, elements like public-private partnership and um, consensus uh, decision-making and expertise and excellence, are, are, are those part of of uh, the fabric of ACUS?
3: Oh, most definitely. It's quite an amazing institution in that regard. The public-private partnership nature um, is very important. The, uh, the assembly consists of 100 and about a hundred people. Um, maybe half of them are government officials, so they obviously have either general counsels or senior uh, officials of agencies. And they—they're naturally usually political, not necessarily, but usually political. So their uh, determination there is, is based on whose which president is in power. Um, but the other half are appointed uh, public citizens. And it was very important from the beginning to make sure we have input from public citizens who are generally very experienced either as lawyers or academics or economists. Um, and if, and um, I had what I used to call the knowers arc rule. When it comes to appointment of our public members, I always made sure I took if I took one from the left If if the Federalist Society chairman was appointed, then so would the American Constitution Society be appointed. So we are very balanced, and that's a conscious thing. It's essential because what we want are consensus decisions that will survive one administration to the next. Uh, it, it, It gains us nothing if we take a political advantage for some reason and then lose it the next time around. We want permanence and Progress uh, consistently.
2: Absolutely, and um, uh, I like to say that we try not to take votes in anger. Uh, develop that consensus. Uh, consensus decision making.
3: Yes, okay. it's important. You know, I've, I've, we've had numerous occasions where the vote came down to one or two hands, um, and then we sort of take step back and say, "Hmm, maybe we should send this back to our staff and look at it again." It's, you know, that's sometimes what happens. Just because we don't want to. Want to want gain any edges that aren't really justified?
2: Right. right. Uh, and
3: by the way, add Andy, that one of the things, great things we do is we pro- provide academic researchers with a purpose, and they do a lot of work for us. So we're getting high quality research at a very low cost. That's another part of the public-private partnership dimension. Uh, the government gets an awful lot.
2: Indeed. Okay, it's time to take our first break. Now, when we get back, we'll hear from our other two guests, Ron and Fumi. You're listening to Between the Lines with ACUS on the Federal News Network. Stay with us. Welcome back, everyone, to Between the Lines with the Administrative Conference. My name is Andy Foyce. I'm your host, and we're talking about ACUS, what it does— and uh, what it's working on in the area of government administrative processes. I'm going to start by turning to Ron Cass um, and give him a real straight line to knock out of the park. Ron, you've been on the council for a a long time. Uh, What do your uh, two appointments or your recent appointments say about the nature of ACUS?
1: Well, it it says three things. First, it says I'm somebody who's willing to work for no pay. Uh, (laughs) Second... It says that that presidents have low standards when it comes to some appointments. And third, it reinforces what Paul was talking about, which is the bipartisan nature of the organization. I was appointed at first by President Obama and then reappointed by him and reappointed again by President Trump and have actually had some position out of connection with ACUS under every President, going back to Jimmy Carter, except when uh, ACUS was out of business during the george uh, Bush years, but more than anything else uh, the the real message here is that this is an organization that's devoted to making things work well, making processes work, and not to one or another political agenda.
2: Uh, yeah, it's very important as uh, as both you and paul have have emphasized. Um, Can you tell us a little bit about uh, the work you've done and your experiences on the council?
1: Over the past 13 years, I've worked with a lot of different people who have been appointed by the the different presidents, uh, people who come from a lot of different backgrounds in government and a lot of different backgrounds that connect through industry or academia to the administrative process. And one of the things I've gotten to see as we do uh, our work on different projects and different things that we're looking over is that people can step back from what their party affiliation is and look at things in terms of their own experience, their experience in working directly with a president or in an executive agency or an independent agency or having business before an agency what people bring from those experience tend to shape their view on what the conference should do, what positions it should take, and how it should move forward much more than any political viewpoint that they have.
2: I see. I understand. Um, Fumi, let me turn uh, to you, bring you into this. You've got a unique experience um, in this area because you're presently a member of the council. Uh, you've actually served twice, first as a government member and now is a uh, uh, what we call public member, even though it's it's in in private. Um, and you've also served on the staff of ACUS. Um, so uh, can you walk us quickly through how ACUS is structured and the and the role of each of its components? It's sort of a different structure than uh, many other uh, independent federal agencies, isn't it?
0: Absolutely. ACUS has an incredibly unique structure. ACUS is led by the chair, which is yourself, who is appointed for a five-year term by the president with the consent of the Senate. The chair presides over council meetings and plenary sessions and serves as the agency's chief overseeing full-time staff within the office of the chair. Then there's the council, which Ron and I are a member of. It consists of the chair and 10 other members who are appointed to three-year terms by the president. As Paul mentioned, no more of Then half of the council members are from federal agencies, and the others are from outside of the government, because the council strives to be ideologically balanced. The council reviews and approves projects and recommendations and recommends them for consideration to the ACUS Assembly. Uh, The council can also offer amendments and advise the chair on ACUS's work as well as determine the time, place, and agenda for ACUS plenary sessions.
2: How about the conference? What does that consist of and what does it do?
0: ACUS consists of 101 members, the chair, the 10 council members, as I mentioned, as well as 50 government members and 40 public members. The up to 50 government members are designated by the heads of participating agencies. And the unique thing is that The agencies include each of the independent regulatory boards and commissions, as well as each of the executive branch departments, as designated by the president. There are also up to 40 public members. Those are appointed for a two-year term by the chair with the approval of the council. The chair selects public members um, in a way that will allow for broad representation of the views of private citizens and utilize the diverse experiences that they have. They come from a number of backgrounds. The ACUS bylaws also permit the chair, with the approval of the council, to appoint senior fellows, special counsels, and liaison representatives. The members meet in plenary sessions, and that's what constitutes the assembly, which has the authority to adopt recommendations. The recommendations are focused on improving the administrative procedure and process and making government work better. Plenary sessions held by the assembly ordinarily take place twice a year. And as discussed earlier, the focus of the ACUS assembly is to be ideologically balanced.
2: Uh, thank you. That's a, a great summary of how we're we're structured. So, Ron, back to you. So how, how what do we pay these people who work so hard?
1: Uh, well we're paid in love and affection and the the joy of uh, accomplishing improvements in administrative procedure, which tends not to be as good at paying the bills as other forms of pay.
2: <laughs> well, uh, volunteerism certainly is one of the themes of Acus, and we appreciate uh, yours and everyone's uh, expertise and um, and excellence. Um r- real quick Ron there was a real talking about the structure of, of of Acus there was an important opinion uh, uh set down by the uh, DC circuit about uh, Acus recently could you tell us a little bit about that
1: Yes uh the the opinion you're talking about concerned uh, a challenge by a former member of the Acus council to the president's action removing that person from his position and the question in the case was whether the president has legal authority to remove a council member during his term. Uh, the the D.C. Circuit of the U.S. Court of Appeals decided that the president does have the, that authority and generally has that authority w- over anybody performing executive duties. Uh, there may be a, an exception for a limited sort of duties that are uh, uh, tied to an old case called the Humphreys-Executor case that concerned the Federal Trade Commission's activities back when Franklin Roosevelt was president. But with that exception, uh, ACUS, like any other executive agency, is subject to the president's authority.
2: Uh, Thank you, Ron. So that means that uh, both you and I and Fumi, we could be – as soon as the president hears this radio show, is that right?
1: And only one of us would wor- worry about the pay loss. <laughs> yes,
2: yeah. uh, that would be the chair. Uh, that, that, that's me. Um, so the stakes are a little bit higher <laughs> in, my, in my case. All right, back to you, Fumi. Um, I like to say that uh, ACUS, which uh, has a, a very limited budget of $3.5 million a year, um, that despite that, we can punch above our weight. Um, And that really applies to uh, the small but uh, uh, dedicated and expert staff that we have. What are some of your experiences as a staff member at ACUS?
0: Absolutely. So ACUS has a small but mighty staff, which really delivers value in government. And I can personally attest to this, given that I started my career in government on the ACUS staff. ACUS was my first job in government, and I'll be internally grateful to Paul who hired me because I could not have asked for a better introduction. Um, And I chose to work at ACUS because as a student of both law and public administration, I truly believed that when government works well, it impacts the lives of others. During my time at ACUS, I had a host of duties, including conducting legal research and writing, reaching out to stakeholders and other activities to further ACUS's mission of improving uh, the government. I was an attorney advisor, um, and I worked on a number of reports and recommendations. Some of the key recommendations I worked on with ACus consultants and members included best practices for agency use of video hearings, midnight rules, and improving consistency in Social Security disability adjudication. I also worked on a number of ACIS Office of the Chairman projects working for Paul, specifically focused on improving the administrative process at places like Social Security Administration, working to implement the use of best practices for video hearings, as well as working on a source book of executive agencies. I truly think fondly of my time on the ACIS staff and am incredibly honored to continue to support the work of ACIS as a member of the council.
2: Uh, Thank you for me. That's uh, a real range of important experiences as a young lawyer that you got on the staff, and uh, we're all grateful for it. Uh, We have to stop right there. Uh, There's a lot more ahead. Come back to us. we're back. You're listening to uh, the Federal News Network. We have a new program for you called Between the Lines, the Administrative Conference of the United States. My name is Andy Foyce. I'm your host, and uh, we're so glad you're with us. So let's uh, let's pick up um, where we left off with the discussion of the ACUS staff. I've got to give a shout out to some of our senior staff now. Our uh, general counsel and um, membership um, director is Sean uh, McGibbon. Our COO and CFO is Harry Seidman. Our uh, research director is uh, Jeremy Grayboys, and uh, they, along with me, make up the um, senior management team. Um, so, um, as a council member for me, uh, how can you compare your your experiences in the staff on the staff to being on the council?
0: It's interesting because as a council member, I get a view of ACUS's work from a different lens than the one I had when I was a staff member. I am no longer involved in the day-to-day work on ACIS reports and drafting of recommendations, but I'm still very much a part of the process as the ACIS chair and staff continue to consult with the council um, and seek advice and input from the council throughout the recommendation process. Um, Indeed, as a council member, I get to review and approve project proposals, I receive briefs on ACUS's reports, uh, as well as review and approve recommendations for consideration by the full ACUS Assembly.
2: Okay, that sounds great. Um, Can you tell us who the the, uh, new appointments from President Biden are to the council?
0: We have a number of amazing individuals that have recently joined the council. On the government side, Kristen Clark, who is the Assistant Attorney General for Civil Rights at DOJ, and Fernando LaGuardia, who is the General Counsel at AmeriCorps. On the public member side, we have Nathan Shaw, who is Associate Counsel, General Counsel at Shopify, and Jonathan Sue, a partner at Latham & Watkins. From academia, we have Professor Ann Joseph O'Connell of Stanford Law School, who interestingly also was my administrative law professor.
2: Yeah, I'm smiling. That's a, um, that's a terrific, I wouldn't say coincidence, it's a small world, but uh, that's a terrific nugget. Yeah, obviously, uh, Fumi, we, um, uh, one of the biggest uh, challenges of ACUS is um, finding and developing um, good ideas for projects and for studies. Um, uh, it's a challenge, but it's, it's a fruitful one. There's, there's a lot of, uh, work out there, um, uh, as, as a staff member and as a councilman who, member who approves, um, the projects, um, wh- where do these projects come from? How do we generate these ideas?
0: This is one of the best parts of ACUS in my mind. Uh, ideas from projects can come from a variety of sources, including Congress, agencies, ACUS assembly members, members of the public, literally ideas can come from anywhere, and oftentimes the work of the staff is to formulize those project ideas into proposals for consideration by the chair, council, and then full assembly.
2: Uh, that's right. So if anyone listening out there has an idea for us, uh, please uh, l- let us know. Um Another important aspect uh, of ACES's work, Paul, uh, after uh, the Assembly has uh, adopted recommendations and after um, studies or research projects are done is um, implementation, getting the agencies, uh, be it the um, Congress, the executive branch, uh, the the judicial conference, to actually adopt and and put our work to use because um, uh, although it could sound sometimes like we're we're uh, academic, that's, uh, and a lot of publishable work it comes uh, from our our uh, consultants' work. But our real mission is to get our recommendations uh, implemented. Uh, what can you say about that?
3: That's the most important thing we really do, is get them implemented and supported. It's one thing. We all sit around and we, we come up with these very good ideas, but then the next step is the crucial step. So I think half of our efforts are now devoted to that follow-up phase. Everyone believes you know, in decision-making that you must go back and make sure what you did has been implemented. We, we have uh, ways of doing that. We go out back to the agencies. We get feedback. We go to Congress as appropriate and get their support. Um, and so I think uh, as a practical matter, that is where the – real payoff lies Um, and we come back and we iterate we make sure we we publish we publicize, and we support and we critique and we check back with the agencies to see if they they have done what they say they want to do Um, this is all done collegially of course we don't have authority in a direct sense but the power of the agency of acus is such that if we come up with an idea We really believe that it'll be followed, and we
1: make sure that it is.
2: Ron, could you give us a couple of examples of implementation? In fact, one from each branch of government would be helpful.
1: Yeah, I I can give you uh, just a quick uh, rundown here. So uh, one of the uh, recommendations we targeted at the judiciary was uh, coming up with supplementary rules for Social Security benefit cases, And there's a great body of cases coming out of the Social Security system trying to find ways of processing them more easily in ways that work both for the system and the people involved was part of that recommendation. We also look at trying to find things that Congress can do to help improve the laws that are being implemented. So, friends, last plenary, we had a recommendation about amending the Freedom of Information Act. There's a lot of things that have happened that target information flows, and particularly the intersection between the Freedom of Information Act and other statutes is something Congress could improve. That was one of the focuses of our recommendation there. For the executive branch, that's where we have most of our recommendations, but we had recommendations in the last two plenaries looking at the agency use of precedent in making agency decisions and the agency use of artificial intelligence i know lots of people who deal with government think that government runs on artificial intelligence but we're talking here about the use of algorithms and other forms of computer-based artificial intelligence not what people may think of our decisions And let me add just just one thing if I can, Andy, and that is when Paul was talking about implementation, in addition to all the different ways the recommendations get acted on pragmatically, we also have a function, a teaching function in a lot of what we do that goes to academics who then teach their students who become lawyers, who become engaged with government in a variety of ways, how to make things work better and what to look for.
2: Absolutely. Thank you for that, Ron. Thank you for the smile. Okay, it's time for another break. You are listening to the Federal News Network, and this is Between the Lines with the Administrative Conference of the United States. My name is Andy Foyce. I'm your host. Come on back. Welcome back, everyone. You're listening to Between the Lines with the Administrative Conference of the United States on the Federal News Network. I'm your host, Andy Foyce. I'm joined here by three wonderful guests, Paul Verkyle, past chairman of uh, the Administrative Conference, Ron Cass, longtime council member, and uh, Fumi Olorunipa Badjo, who is uh, both a former staffer and a present uh, member of the council. Um, so, Fumi, let, let me turn it uh, to you. In, um, in June, just this past June, uh, the full conference met and the Assembly uh, developed and, and voted on and approved four recommendations, um, and uh, two of them are of particular interest. Could you uh, talk about two of those four, please?
0: Sure. The Assembly approved a recommendation on virtual public engagement. This recommendation encourages agencies to offer virtual options when they determine it would be beneficial to hold a public rulemaking engagement and also offers best practices for planning, improving the notice of, and managing public rulemaking engagements. I think given the post-pandemic era, virtual public engagement has come more to the forefront And this recommendation seeks to help agencies improve their virtual public engagement. It recommends things like explaining how they intend to use virtual options to engage the public and preparing guidance on how to conduct virtual public engagement. It also recommends that agencies should provide all virtual meeting information on their websites in the Federal Register and through social media. Another recommendation that was passed in June was the use of algorithmic tools in retrospective review. This recommendation identifies best practices for agencies to assess, acquire, and use algorithmic tools for retrospective review in a way that accords with legal requirements and promotes accuracy, efficiency, transparency, and accountability. It recommends that when agencies use these types of tools, they should consider whether to develop them in-house or procure through other resources. Other agencies, such as the General Services Administration, might have useful resources. It also recommends that agencies should ensure that personnel who use these tools have adequate training on the tool's risks and capabilities. It also recommends that agencies publicly disclose whether and how they plan to use these tools to support retrospective review. These two recommendations are just assembling of the work that ACUS has done this past June and are part of the full body of recommendations available for public view on ACUS's website.
2: Well, thank you, Fumi. That's uh. Uh, a very um, understandable and uh, concise summary of what were um, uh, very long and complex reports and uh, recommendations. So uh, grateful to you for that. Um, R- Ron, how about now? Um, what are some of the things that ACUS is looking at now?
1: Well, we, we get, as you said earlier, Andy, we, we get our ideas from a lot of different sources, and then they, they go through a, a very complicated and long vetting process to get them teed up Uh, For the the conference itself. So when we talk about what we're thinking about, this is really sort of step one in a long process. But we're looking at trying to get rid of unnecessary burdens uh, in the administrative process, at trying to handle forms of adjudication that don't involve what people think of as a trial type evidentiary hearing. We're trying to look at how agencies deal with user fees, how they're uh, apportioned, what they're put on, how they're uh, interacting with other things that deal with what Congress has to say about what uh, budgets are for agencies, and also what we do about getting uh, our agency adjudicative processes more timely, having them go faster, unlike my usual interventions, because being an academic, I'm used to talking in 50-minute blocks. Uh, I've got about another 45 minutes of this answer. <laughs> uh,
2: okay, well that'll be uh, episode two. Um, uh, Ron, we'll we'll uh, save that for then. Um, Could I just go ahead, uh,
3: Paul? Recommendations. I think one of you know we all decry what happened during COVID to the government, to people's lives, and everything, health, and so forth. But one of the advantages it created was the use of virtual representation. Uh, take we know for a fact that we all people are entitled to seedings in action. But in the old days, you had to show up personally. that's how you got, and so who could do that? especially if you're not from Washington. But now with virtual representation and proceedings, you have a function of necessity at the time. But it's one of those things that turns into a real advantage long-term, and it opens up government in a dramatic way to the general public.
2: Absolutely. And um, uh, those people, uh, whether they're lawyers or you know, individuals or members of the public, um, they need access to um, the administrative uh, processes, which is not always easy to get. So um, we've been uh, working on access to justice all all year, and... Um, Uh, Fumi, I'll ask you to talk a little bit about those efforts.
0: Absolutely. ACUS is doing a lot of work on access to justice, specifically on access to administrative processes. For example, ACUS and the Legal Services Corporation, which is also a government agency, have collaborated to launch a public forum series featuring multiple panel presentations that examine ways to improve support for parties in adjudication processes where they are frequently self-represented. Additionally, President Biden reconvened the White House Legal Aid Interagency Roundtable in 2021 and named ACUS one of its members. Lair's mission includes developing policy recommendations and best practices to improve access to justice and facilitating coordination among federal programs on access to justice issues. ACUS works intimately and very hard with Lair's co chairs, the Attorney General and the Counsel to the President, as well as other roundtable members to accomplish this mission. ACIS's commitment to access to justice is just one of the many values that it provides to the public and to the government.
2: Uh, thank you, Fumi. Yes, that's been an important um, uh, project for us with a, a series of, of, of events and forums and, and, and writing. We look forward to the to the lay report at the uh, end of the year that will focus uh, particularly on this topic. And and you know, people when they say access to justice usually think about courts and and, and litigation. Um, but that's really a small part of what affects uh, uh, most people day to day. You know, It's the administrative process. Are you getting your health benefits? Are you getting your VA benefits? What about uh, Social Security and, and Medicare? Um, uh, that's where people are really, um, really affected. So we need to get them lawyers in the administrative process or get them uh, plugged in on their own. Okay, well, it's time to say thank you to all three of of uh, my guests for being here, sharing your experiences, sharing your expertise with with ACUS. Um, in coming episodes, we'll explore current topics of interest in administrative law and specific topics that uh, ACUS is working on as well. Um, a look for our next program to be on Access to Justice, um, the, the issue we just uh, described. Uh, for more information on ACUS, you can go to the, the web, www.acusacus.gov. Um, and um, for now, thank you all for listening. Goodbye. I'm your host, Andy Foyce. And as John Lennon said, I hope we pass the
1: audition. You've been listening to Between the Lines with the Administrative Conference of the United States on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. You can listen to this episode and all of our past episodes anytime at federalnewsnetwork.com or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.